and we are live. Welcome everyone to Connected Learning TV. This is the third webinar in our September series titled Embracing Video Games for Interest-Powered Learning. Uh, my name is Paula Esquadra. I'm the Digital Marketing and Communications Manager for Glass Lab, uh, and I'll be your host for today. Throughout this month on Connected Learning TV, we're going to be diving into some deep conversations around leveraging video games for high-impact learning. Uh, today, specifically, we'll be chatting about how we can design safe, respectful video game spaces that really motivate, inspire, and educate youth in and outside of the classroom. Uh, but before we dive into our chat, let's go over a couple of quick things. To those watching live right now, we welcome your comments and questions, either via the Twitter hashtag ConnectedLearning or via the Google Plus event page. Uh, and we'll do our best to address your questions and comments here in the Hangout. We'll also be chatting throughout the month in the collected, Connected Learning Google Plus community and using the same hashtag Connected Learning on Google Plus. Um, I'd like to give our guests a chance to briefly introduce themselves. Uh, Carol, would you like to start? I suppose so. That's easier than following this lineup. Um, I'm Kara Williams. I am a PhD student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, I've worked on some educational games, and for my dissertation, I am designing and disseminating another game. Very cool. Nice to have you here. Uh, Dan, how about you? Sure. Hi. Uh, I'm Dan Norton. I'm Chief Creative Officer at Filament Games, and Filament Games is a design and development studio in Wisconsin that focuses exclusively on learning games. Great to have you here. Erin, uh, would you like to go next? Sure. Uh, I'm the game design lead at Glass Lab. We are a nonprofit uh, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the MacArthur Foundation to make, uh, basically to bring veteran game developers uh, with together with cutting edge learning scientists and create big data-powered uh, analysis of the behavioral data from games. And um, I'm also the lead designer on our recent product, Mars Generation 1, Argubot Academy, which we made in collaboration with NASA and the National Writing Project to teach argumentation to middle schoolers. Good. Uh, Matt, would you like to go next? Sure. Um, I'm a researcher at the Connected Learning Research Network, and I'm also a PhD candidate at University of California, Irvine, and I typically study why young people adopt technologies in the way they do, but my dissertation is essentially about um, young people uh, pursuing creative production online uh, through schools. So, happy to be here. Fantastic. And Rex? I'm Rex Beaver. I am the Community Development Outreach Manager at uh, Game Desk. I've been here two weeks. Before that, I worked with the Games Learning Research Center at Madison, Wisconsin, where Carol's from, and uh, actually worked with Film and Games and Dan Morton there as well. So I've been spending a lot of time the past few years working with teachers and building networks of educators who use games in creative, fun ways and helping them communicate with other educators who do the same thing to come up with really cool projects. That's great. Uh, thanks again for every, uh, to everybody for joining. Uh, let's go ahead and dig into the content. So uh, throughout the course of this four-part web series, we've discussed what goes in a game, uh, how a game can be high impact and create in a, uh, innovative interactive learning opportunities. Uh, many of the questions raised revolve not 
only just how it's distributed to educators and students and consumers, but how it's designed. Um, so how do, we, how do we define the idea of a safe and respectful video game? Uh, what are the problems that result in us having to create that definition and establish it in the industry? Um, would anyone like to go first? Um, I can jump in, I suppose. Um, the topic was very interesting to me because I think um, what I've seen in game design and game development over the last 20 years as we've kind of become a lot more mature as a medium is that the better we get at designing games, uh, the more capitalism can inform what we're trying to do. And so what we've seen is actually the rise of, uh, I think, dark patterns in video games. Uh, they're especially prevalent in free-to-play games, but I would say they always have been around. And so it's easier to say what is disrespectful than it is to say what is respectful. And so I'm kind of interested in turning that around and saying, so if we can identify certain things, uh, typically with monetization, which I know a lot of parents are worried about, or advertising that represent dark patterns, basically where the developer has an intent for the player that the player might not be on board with themselves, and so the practices become somewhat deceptive, try and get them to do things you don't want to do. Um, how that changes a game, how its, uh, its presence basically um, can subvert uh, the intention that we have as designers to create fulfilling experiences. And I think uh, from the education side, is there something, there's, I think there's a danger, and I'm relatively new to making educational games, that just because our intent can be very good, which is to, to teach and to learn and to, to empower people, um, we're still kind of, oftentimes, especially with children, giving them something they might necessar necessarily want. And so are we susceptible to dark patterns as a result of that? I have a little bit of a follow-up, actually. Um, so that makes me think, you know, Games as these design environments obviously reflect the designer's intent. Um, and educational games, I think, also inherit certain assumptions about culture and content and approaches to learning from the, you know, the history of K-12 and K-16 education. So I think with educational games in particular, we need to look at, we need to interrogate uh, multiple uh, assumption points, including, like, you know, I think if you take textbook content and you wrap it in a game, uh, sort of you know, game-like structures. We can argue whether or not that's technically a game or whatever, but it still is definitely inheriting these sort of assumptions that how children best learn math is practicing an algorithm over and over again. Yeah, I think I think especially if you want to talk about um, the types of design decisions that drive, you know, microtransaction or free-to-play that are purely about uh, hooks short-term engagement to demand the player to try and transfer them into a purchase. Like those types of retention or I almost don't even want to call them engagement strategies, but those methods of using the surface layer of engagement uh, ultimately I think sort of burn out that wiring and uh, especially in our field they really don't speak anything to the actual sort of mission of creating meaningful gameplay, right? I think even if you are purely a serious, or I'm purely a commercial game developer, and uh, I don't want to trivialize the word fun, but just say if your core is entertainment, uh, that treatment of entertainment as saying, well, eyeballs on screen longer or converted credit card payment for half 
uh, you know, I think those are those are really damaging, short-sighted views on what it means to have a good play experience. Um, and I, I really think that, I mean, I'm all for using data to inform play and I'm all uh, and design and iteration. But I think if you reduce your user to either a credit card transaction or a length of time in a particular interface. Um, I don't think that's why any of us do this. And I think when you use that as your main metric, it just leads you down to an unhealthy place. Yeah, I think these are really good points. And I think they get to a larger issue, which is as game designers and as members of a community that are maybe a meta, kind of a part of a meta gaming experience, the community that forms around the game that's being played, I think we're challenged to think about, you know, what is the kind of shared purpose that we're trying to craft as part of these playful pursuits? And if the shared purpose is maybe tinged with a pricing model, it does seem to make us think that maybe, maybe that's going to burn the wire at both ends in terms of making it a fun learning experience. So I think if we think critically about, like, the, you know, how to create a safe and respectful video game, or just, it's really about creating a, a good environment for learning. It's about crafting a shared experience that maybe is about fun and learning and us all doing it together, you know, I, um, and designing for those players in mind, for, for new people that want to be part of that experience, um, uh, I think is a perhaps a good template to begin with. Yeah, I agree with that completely, and I, this is actually one of the reasons why I think the learning space uh, is a very advanced competency within game design itself because I think uh, from the history of games, what we have um, is a we've approached it from the perspective of content delivery, and I think even uh, education has done the same thing. It's like we have this content, we've decided what is educational, and we're going to convey it into your head. And I think the the disruption that's happening now is something that's approaching learning as much more collaborative, and uh, even these notions of the flipped classroom to me remind me of a concept of the consent of the governed. And if you have an idea of learners have to be in collaboration with you and you have to have their agreement that they should learn this thing, you're going to approach it completely differently. But that's actually one of the challenges that we have in games because we're, um, we're interacting asynchronously with the player. We're creating a game and then giving it to them. So how can we actually make that experience collaborative? We have certain things we could do with procedural games and systems that allow creativity and exploration and things like that, which get towards it. But um, I think that's the next evolution in all of these games, something that's genuinely collaborative with the player. And I think that that's where you see a lot of success coming from games like Minecraft and other similar sort of sandbox creative style games like Little Big Planet and other things like that, uh, where that conversation doesn't necessarily have to be had explicitly because the player, the game for the player is creating whatever they want to create. And so I think that that's one of the reasons that those sorts of experiences have picked up so well in the classroom at this point is that they transition immediately without really having to have a lot of um, structure added outside of them to create those conversations between the game designer and the, the player themselves because the player is acting sort of as a game designer in that world. 
I also want to super add super fast. One of the awesome things about uh, Minecraft and uh, the Portal 2 education stuff and Living Planet and all of those, it's not just the students that we're calling players here. We're actually giving teachers uh, more tools to use that in their classroom as well. And I think that that's incredibly powerful. Um, it's not me as someone who's never actually been a K-12 teacher building this thing and then handing it over and being like, I know what's best for your classroom. It's the teachers who can actually make those those real on-the-ground decisions in their design process. Yeah, I agree with Karen. I think that's actually, I think that's one of the most important, I think, interesting tensions for games like Minecraft or, or other great games that offer open-ended creative experiences is that, um, well, I don't think anyone's going to say they're against open-ended creative experiences, but teachers in classrooms often do need to try and get their class to learn specific things at specific times or, or to see and track and find out whether or not uh, their players are, you know, the students are all roughly in the same place. And those open-ended creative experiences, you know, uh, along with the opportunities to provide, also create challenges there. Because um, you, can, you can unleash a classroom on Minecraft even with a specific exercise and at the end of the day find out that everyone has pulled out a totally different experience. Uh, from it. So I think it's a really, I think when you're talking about game design uh, and integrating it, especially in the classrooms where you have some more rigid requirements rather than, uh, you know, outside of classroom learning experiences, it's a really interesting tension to explore is how much can you create a creative exploration space and then how much do you really want to make sure you have supportive scaffolding to uh, get students to have a more common experience that the teacher can use afterwards as, as a shared context. Uh, I don't have a remotely good answer. I just think it's, it's an interesting problem. Well, I think that framing is perfect because as designers, um, you can be poised to create the scaffolding. Like, I think that's a terrific metaphor so that, you know, if at any point a teacher or a student with interest wants to explore a particular curricular kind of path, they can do so. Um, in traditional classrooms, many of the settings are just like, this is what we're going to accomplish today and everybody has to be able to do this and has to be at the same pace. And I think that, I think that many of us know that that's kind of problematic and, and is why the flipped classroom is a solution for some people because it, it's, it says, okay, everybody's going to be at a different place and the role of the teacher or the mentor could perhaps be, you know, about helping people who are busy working on their own kind of task to uh, get the support they need in that moment. So I think the metaphor of scaffolding is actually uh, pretty cool. Yeah. It actually, uh, there's actually been an interesting question that's been raised then. So when, when you're talking about the flipped classroom and you're talking about how um, using video games as tools can create a more dynamic learning environment, um, how do you manage uh, being respectful to those different types of learning styles? Um, and do you guys have any examples of, of, in your work, in your research, or in your own gameplay, um, how have you seen that, that handled or... or how do you see opportunities rising from that question? Oh, that's a super cool question because I think I think sometimes uh, historically film has occasionally been approached with projects with prospective clients who have a lot of enthusiasm for games and learning, but it comes from a, a place where they start sort of saying, we want to get that hardcore gamer experience that kids have and integrate that into a gameplay uh, environment for learning. And so they've, they've embedded this assumption that all children are essentially hardcore video gamers and 
while uh, Pew did a really nice survey, oh, like a long time ago, like five, six years ago, that asked the question of how many kids are playing games, and the answer was almost all of them. Uh, they're not all playing Halo by any stretch. They're actually a very diverse set of players across a very wide variety of different types of games and different paces, different levels of multiplayer competition and uh, synchronicity. So uh, I think it's really important uh, when you're designing a game uh, to not try and lean on some expectations of gamer preference and style and even literacy. You know, you can't uh, one of Filament's first projects is one uh, that we had you controlling an underwater aircraft. Uh, well, I guess an underwater watercraft makes more sense. An underwater watercraft uh, in 3D space, and we used uh, you know WSD and some arrow keys, uh, and that slaughtered our users. Uh, you know, for us, what was just a native way to experience the 3D space as as game players was not at all something you could immediately to a group of kids and just ask them all to have it. And that's, you know, and, you know especially even in teachers as well. They're like, how, how do I do this? And I, I would say we made a great effort at ridiculously robust scaffolding, too. We had a very nice, patient, and kind tutorial to, to introduce the concepts of, of moving your craft through 3D space. But it was still, after many, many iterations, is a giant pain point for almost all all rollouts of that game. So we learned a lot that there's you want to have a pretty broad and open concept of what your users are going to be bringing to the game in terms of, of their literacies in digital media so that you can meet them where they are and, and, and get them into the game experience with as little pain as possible. Yeah, that's one of the things that we talk about at Glass Lab a lot too and um, when we begin our processes uh, also, you're just thinking about what is the cognitive load of the game features themselves of the type of game that we're trying to build. And that's one of the earliest questions that we have to answer. So, um, for one thing, I think there's, there's a fundamental part of game design that you are not, um, as part of your process, you have to be playtesting early and playtesting often in order to suss out those kinds of things. Um, we significantly modified the navigation in Mars Generation 1 because of those uh, assumptions about movement and things like that. It's just, it's so easy to forget that uh, we want to create an engaging experience. It's like this engaging experience and kids will like that. It's like, oh, but wait a minute. Uh, is a certain category of kids that like that type of game and there's a literacy there. And if they don't have it, then uh, we're going to be losing two-thirds of the classroom at least. And so uh, you raise an interesting point as well as like in terms of engagement. So when you, would you have a intended learning outcome and you're creating a, like an understanding of movement and how uh, different users progress through the great the game um, so how do you how do you I suppose like marry the two together in terms of um, how players learn um, and how you know you do have to satisfy a certain learning outcome be it through math or language understanding or critical thinking um, how do you how do you maintain true to the content if, if things are you know very creative and very experimental um, and it's all very exciting but I mean like there's um, how do you navigate that space that's a that's a super cool question because I think uh, lately I've been kind of on this anti fun kick myself like I've been like disenchanted with the concept of of getting fun into content, and I've been really been more trying to think about how do we represent content authentically, 
And I've been posed for myself as a thought experiment. Is it is it satisfactory to make a game that so legitimately embodies a piece of content that uh, if a student actually hates doing that thing in real life, that they also hate my game? And I don't I don't know if there's a good answer to that question. I mean. On one hand, we have all these tools to try and incentivize and scaffold and support and try to impart a passion uh, for the objectives we put into the games. But at the same time, is it disrespectful to our users to suggest that they are going to love learning all things all the time? And it's just a matter of format to introduce it? I mean, there's all kinds of things in the world that I'm terrible at that I also hate. You know, uh, like I would be the worst waiter on the planet. Uh, I can't remember. I can barely remember what I ordered at a restaurant. You know, so there's there's all sorts of things that are like skills and abilities that maybe uh, maybe we need to worry more about authentically embedding them than we do uh, uh, making sure that it's a super fun experience for everyone all the time. I think so, it is about authenticity. Oh, sorry, I need to jump over something. Um, I think it's about both authenticity in intent and about um, finding what is compelling for the people that are genuinely passionate about that topic. And so yeah. um, I, I think one of the things that can be very challenging with something that's esoteric in, in learning or abstract is. Uh, when we have something like in, in math that's you have to learn this because you need to get to this point far down the line. It's very hard to convey to a player why should I care about that right now and I might even, you know, I may not care about it later. Um, I know what we try to do is turn to subject matter experts because uh, someone who has devoted their whole life to a particular piece of content is going to look at it a lot differently than, uh, than we were going into it and try and suss out what is it about this subject that is so intensely compelling to you that you want to do it for the rest of your life. And if you can kind of capture that mechanic, then at least uh, on an introductory level you can expose kids to here's a possibility and if you're really into this idea, then this is a path for you in the future. Yeah, and I think that this tension is an important one because we know from research that schools are not an inherent interest that young people often know that they have before they get there. And often, you know, underrepresented students, minority youth, have a very hard time when they get to schools because the lessons are structured in a way that don't actually meet their interests. And so what I think that video games and other kind of learning activities um, have that schools don't is that what is authentic is allowing young people to pursue what's interesting to them and create something that's interesting to them and find ways to show how maybe some of these other academically oriented pursuits and content that educators know might matter, although some of it probably doesn't always really matter for young people's lives after they graduate, and to integrate that into the process. So like for example, um, in our study of Little Big Planet, you know, many of the, the players that I interviewed played because they were interested in the game, but as they learned to create video games themselves, which is part of uh, the gameplay experience for many of them, they're learning math and logic and programming while doing it. The main arc of the shared purpose is about creating a game and sharing it with your friends and enjoying it, um, enjoying that process. 
while learning these skills um, in the process instead of that being the like I have to learn a fraction like that's what's going to make me happy kind of thing so I completely agree with you on that and and that's sort of the focus of the way that we design things here the the design is about an experience it's about building off of what the, the player the participant is interested in and the learning comes about through their own interests so uh, whether that that's the mechanic in the game tied directly to that learning objective or if they need that skill to be successful at something they want to be successful in. so we have similar to yours of the math maker program where kids design their games through uh, game maker and they learn math as, a, as an avenue to make better games if you want to make somebody uh, look like they're jumping properly you need to understand how parabolas work and what the equation for that is so they need to learn uh, about the you know, the equations to put those into the game mm -hmm. you need to have the math background for that and same thing for people who are interested in the art aspects if they're creating their own characters uh, their sprites in the game and they want to make them look uh, cool they likely know some things about symmetry and they can learn about symmetry uh, as an avenue to make a cool character for their game that makes other people want to play it. Uh, so I believe this is my last comment because then I'm going to wander off. Um, but this is I'm super excited about this conversation because it's something that I've been absolutely battling with as I've been working on my dissertation design. Um, so in math education, this gentleman, Harrell, talks about intellectual need. That's when you introduce, say, uh, fraction notation, when they need that fraction notation. Um, and I have sort of taken that perspective along with like one of the many definitions of game that exists out there. Shell talks about a problem-solving activity approached with a playful attitude. That's also how mathematicians approach original research, and that's how I approach math problems that are new to me. Um, and so the, you know, I, I think we can respect the content and the player, um, not by controlling the player, but by representing mathematics so that it's interesting um, and fun and playful. And by fun, I don't mean, sorry, Dan, I know you, you just said that that's a word you're getting a little cranky about. No, uh, no, I don't no. like, I don't, well, I don't like the idea of enforcing fun or just aiming for that, but aiming for a problem-solving activity that, and, and supporting the playful attitude approach, to me, is like incredibly powerful. That doesn't mean it will all be fun, but that's true of every game that I've ever played. Um, also, I hate waiting tables, and I've done it for real, and I also hate all games about waiting tables, just for the record. It's like flashbacks. It's terrible. Hilarious. All right. Thank you all for having me. It was delightful. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Carol. I'd like to... Um, Carol's actually brought up something I think is really interesting, is that let's take a game like uh, World of Warcraft, for example. I, I, if you've played World of Warcraft... You've certainly been online and had someone else log in and say, oh, I am so bored. Um, and, you know, the first thought you have is, well, why, then why are you playing this game? If this is your free time election, why are you logging into a thing to declare that you feel like there is nothing worse to do? And I, I think the answer is that the game, through social glue, uh, regular participatory quests, uh, and, you know, the reward metrics that you need to be able to sort of hang in and participate on the fun activities uh, are enough that players will go through the things they consider unpleasant or boring uh, uh, and, 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 and push through them. So I guess my question is, do you think that's 
is that disrespectful to those players? Is it is it disrespectful to give players low value activities that are hung in the context of a larger reward structure? I mean, because you know, Blizzard knows that killing the same twenty boars every day is not an inspiring intellectual problem anymore. Um, but they do want to reward your loyalty, right? Like, you know, they do want you to. Re they want to reward you for persisting and being there and being part of the community. So, I don't know. It's an. I don't know. Is, what do you guys think? Is that disrespectful, or is that just the name of the game, so to speak? Uh, I think. I believe that's. I, I, sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> oh, it's just. It, it raises a very good question and, and can definitely tie it into to how games are designed. Um, in addition to that question, um, on a broader scope, how are we defining success? And, and when we're creating a safe environment that is compared to an unsafe environment, um, how, do, how do we define what is what is relevant content and what isn't? Um, but yeah, go for it, Aaron. <laughs> um, I mean, I think this is one of the great questions in online game design, and I think it's one of the ways in which this question of respect, that there's a reason why um, I would think about that question of respect, I think, more than other types of game designers because of my background in online games, because we run into these problems all the time. It's like, here's this thing that seems like it's very disrespectful to players, and yet they want to do it all the time, and they stay and do it a lot. And yeah. that, that trend extended into free-to-play. I think um, you can get into like really abstract and tr tricky discussions of... Um, behavioral psychology, and are we just kind of triggering some kind of mind-hacky thing that players like to do and will do in a sticky fashion, but ultimately doesn't leave them somewhere good. But it does create the context for a lot of people in one place. You get these interesting social dynamics. It's a huge dilemma. Um, I think um, to kind of put it back on, on education and those things, I think that um, there is a, a similar uh, dilemma between how much, we're talking a lot about respecting players and letting them do self-directed learning and all that kind of thing, which is great, but I think we can turn that dial a little bit too far to the point where we're letting them do too much leading, where you, even kids actually want to be shown what it is that they should learn and what's intriguing about something. So we can't sort of abdicate leadership in the interests of creating these collaborative, uh, creative spaces. And I think that Carol really hit on something really important, which is that I think the heart of respectful game design for learning is that you create an environment where you're illuminating this sort of intriguing intellectual uh, We're going to make you do some math problems, and then you'll get to do something fun. It's like, no, 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 that's completely, you're, you're ruining everything when you do things like that. But if you can instead create an environment where a kid is exploring through the space, discovers something that they want to do, Intrinsically, I've identified that I want to get over this wall, and I can use this math tool to do it much more efficiently. All of a sudden, you're kind of showing them, here's the purpose of math, here's why math even exists and why it's powerful to you. I think those are really great points, and I don't maybe one of the things I've just been thinking about is what kind of currencies do we develop in the games that we're playing and, and enjoying? And if the currency is really just about earning experience points as you kill, like, monster after monster to level up, and, that, and that's just the heart of the gameplay, I think that that is a disservice uh, to players, and I think that is where World of Warcraft kind of loses its shine. 
And I know other people have studied World of Warcraft and found that cer there are certain ways to play it that can be really educational. Um, but um, I agree with Aaron, and I and I think um, I think thinking more critically about the incentive structure as you imagine the gameplay experience is an important part of the process. Yeah. I might I actually might push back on that a little bit. I mean, I really do feel like often in RPG games. The experience system or staff-driven equipment, etc., are really sort of difficulty adjustment ramps where you can exchange time for technical mastery. So maybe your guild isn't the best at jumping over the walls of fire, but if you persist, uh, your gear will get better and better, and eventually you'll be able to endure a couple more of those walls before everyone tips over, and you'll beat the boss. Right. So, so the game actually used time as another type of currency to adjust the difficulty of the encounter to meet the group where it was, right? So it's uh, it's maybe not the fastest way to do it, but it does turn into that, again, that loyalty component of getting the guild to show up, try it again, and they will get better at the same time, right? So it's still incentivizing increasing skill, but it's also got this other little knob that's turning slowly, being like, well, your fire resistance is a little more up this time because you've collected uh, a few extra pieces of gear. Um, and I think that's true even in single-player RPGs, right? You know, uh, if you want to, you can go, you know, stab those slimes in a cave for an extra 40 hours and then pave over every monster you see. Uh, if, that's, if that's how you see the game sort of uh, in terms of uh, a skill, ultimately, you can go out there and try and crush every monster at the very edge of your technical capabilities uh, and say, hey, I only used two potions and a wooden sword and I still killed that guy. Um, so I, I, think there's, I think there's a place for experience uh, or, or those currencies of, ex of exchanging time for, as a difficulty moderator. And in, in some certain way, I think it's a release valve for uh, a, adjustment. It's difficult to say how comfortable you should be applying that in educational games, though, because ultimately we really do want mastery of those objectives to be the real metric uh, of, of play, and we want all of our award structures to be tied, uh, tied to a legitimate grappling and mastery uh, of, the, of the objectives. So, so you, you certainly wouldn't want, oh, well, you know, no one learned anything, but they didn't play it long enough that we let them through. Right? That would obviously be a, a really bad way to go. But I think there's still room for that concept in terms of uh, possibly as a scaffolding, reflection, or remediation structure. Um, I don't know. Maybe that makes no sense. No, I, I agree with you, Dan. I, I just I, I think that currencies often have meanings associated with them, and I just I think that, much like what you're saying, we should just think about what the meaning is behind the experience that we're developing, what the goals are, and what the process looks like. I think that's, uh, I think your points are really well made. Yeah, yeah I totally I agree think this that. is really very similar to the, your first concern, Dan, which was the authentic nature of the game. So if we're talking about having an authentic experience where um, you know, somebody's playing as an engineer and they have boring moments as well as the really exciting ones, mm -hmm. then we're running into that same situation with uh, a game like World of Warcraft where you have really exciting experiences and then you have the farming 20 boars over and over and over again so that you can do better in those more engaging experiences. So the, the mechanic or the reason that you're 
killing those 20 boards over and over again, doing this really tedious, monotonous thing, such as you know, solving this math equation, uh, is so that you can have a better experience in the fun stuff, which I think is kind of really similar to a lot of mainstream jobs, for normal jobs. So um, I'm curious how we can think about that in the context of being authentic for you know, learning situations and learning games where how do you how do you navigate that? How do you make a you know a, a, an experience where you're being authentic with it but you're also not being boring because I don't think having right. you know kids do the mental equivalent of farming boars over and over again is is a learning experience that we want to be promoting in in early learners and in schools and things like that. And so um, we've we've raised multiple titles and, and genres of gaming. We've talked about Portal, which is uh, very much fo focused on spatial reasoning, and we've talked about WoW, which is an immersive, um, massive multi multiplayer online gaming experience. Um, are there certain types of games that are inherently more conducive to developing this ki kind of skills or mindsets in the 21st century that we, we really want young, lear uh, young learners to have? Um, so... Hmm. I think uh, there are different games for different purposes, and I think that's some of what uh, what the World of Warcraft conversation was circling around as well. No game is going to be all things to all people, and so I think um, in in WoW's case, you see this highly distilled, uh, you know, arbitrary points and leveling system because the, what that game was was an SEL game. The actual boss level of World of Warcraft has nothing to do with the actual. Uh, button-clicking mechanics, but it is can you successfully get along with your guild enough that you can cooperate enough to beat this gigantic boss because it can't be done with one person. So the thing that's actually the wall there is SEL. And so I think it, it really depends, depending on what you're gonna, what you're trying to build, what skill you're talking about, it's, you'll use different mechanics for it. I'm not sure that you can say that there's a blanket, one type of game is, is better for 21st century. I, I, I totally agree with all that. I, I do at least have one angry grudge against uh, player versus player competitive mechanics in classrooms. I'm sure someone will do a great job of that and or probably even point out some existing games that are awesome, but I, I personally like try and steer away from creating game environments where uh, there's an open and public way of demonstrating your better and or shaming other players. Um, I, you know, I think if you have competitive kids in a classroom or learning environment, they'll find ways to be competitive. Uh, that's okay, but I think there's a large contingent, and actually I think you know, Doug Clark did some nice research that, that backed me up on this. Is I think that you will also then scare away a large group of players who are more interested in experimentation than actually any need to win over other people and, and people who actually shy away from open competition. And so, uh, I, you know, obviously there are many very successful game genres in the commercial arena that thrive on a competitive model and demand it uh, in order to make it uh, worth playing. Um, but at least for me as, as a designer, it's not... A, a place I really like to draw from for, for thinking about how to create successful learning experiences. Yeah, I think these are really important questions because 
You know, I think that I think there's a danger in saying that all forms of competition are bad. Competition can be really good. I just think that through design, both at the game level and at the community level, there are ways to structure competition such that, you know, I don't know, I've just been thinking of this phrase I heard the other day, like, like always design for thumbs up. So like, so, like, even when you have a competition and someone loses, the discussion that happens during and afterwards is about what, you know, what you did great and what you could do better, rather than, like, oh, you were the worst, you were rated the worst, you, like, you know, the, the game is telling me that you... <laughs> that you're now totally out of the rank and you're, you're not part of the community anymore. I think that there's a lot that we can be doing at many levels of structure in the gaming experience to kind of design for constructive improvement in mind rather than, you know, PvP, you're going to die and now you have to run a thousand miles to get back to your corpse. Like, I don't think that is necessarily uh, the ideal model. So. Yeah, I mean, I think... It's, it's extremely interesting what you said, Dan, and I want to think about it some more, in part because we do actually have this dearth of PvP games in the learning space, and that's very interesting to me. It's like it, it, it's a gap, and it's very unexplored. And does it mean that it's a bad idea, or does it mean that we haven't figured it out yet? And um, I, think, I think you probably would also make a distinction between PvP and team versus team, because... Some of the oldest games in school are sports, and sports make a huge use of using competition to drive improvement. And it seems like leaving something on the table if we kind of say we shouldn't do that. Yeah, I think that's fair. It's probably more just a revealing of my own biases. I used to think that I was a very non-competitive person, but I realized actually I hate losing is actually the thing. <laughs> and, uh, and I actually quite like playing competitive games if I'm good at them. Uh, very little interest in playing competitive games if I'm bad at them. Um, and, you know, so, so to translate that back into learning, right, it, it gets very hard for me to invest in a problem if I'm constantly reminded that people around me are doing it better than I am. Uh, and so I take that little, that little delicate flower, Dan Norton, his feelings get hurt by losing in games, and I, I project that on my prospective students uh, and say, can't we build, you know, collaborative experiences? Or uh, can't we spend that time that went into balancing the competition into more scaffolding and sort of celebrating the content? You know, the, yeah. But like I said, I, I really do think that's probably just my own glitch. Uh, well, uh, no, I think it's a really super interesting thing because... I, and we, I think we had a question from Twitter about what constitutes a safe space and what constitutes an unsafe space, which it, it comes up, you know, on online games again over and over. And I think one of the potentials that the game space has is to create a safe space for losing. And so that this is another, you know, SEL thing you can develop in a kid. It's like, it's okay to, to lose sometimes in a place where you're not going to be, you know, super punitive about what it means to lose. And I think mm -hmm. it does just mean that the, the balance of the PvP has to be very carefully... Um, incentivized such that you have a, a reward for something like most improved that means as much as being at the top of the leaderboard. So I think that um, it, it all works together because, or, or can be used different ways because each of these different genres of games can be a tool that might be a better tool for a different problem than 
you know, another problem. So if you have students who want to learn in a competitive situation and they're trying to learn those sorts of collaborative skills, team building, etc., then games that use that as a mechanic are going to be more powerful for that, where you can have other situations where that's going to be a deterrent for the actual learning that you want to take place, and using a, a single-player model is going to be more effective. Uh, and I think that one thing I want to make sure that we are thinking about is that these are not played in isolation. Even if it's a, a player first player or a team-based game, the interactions are not explicitly only the on-screen things that are happening. And so a lot of the way we use these in the classroom can be uh, augmented by the way the teacher is actually facilitating the playing of the game. Uh, what is the scope that they're putting it in? What is the sort of curricular purpose for it? Uh, how are they adding other things? So an example uh, the, from yesterday, actually, we had some teachers from Australia came in, and uh, our two teacher trainers, Ted and AJ, uh, they did an activity with them using Little Alchemy, which is a really simple game where you just put two things together and you end up making stuff from fire and uh, water and wind all the way up into uh, Jedis with lightsabers and, and things like that. So in and of itself, the game doesn't really have any learning objectives. It's not really... Uh, you know, it doesn't have a purpose other than just kind of being fun. And uh, what Ted and AJ had done with it was they added number values to those four basic things and uh, created essentially a, a situation where the people were trying to figure out what those numbers meant. And, uh, and it turned out that the way they had constructed it was that it was factoring. So it was a really simple uh, factoring equation, and they gave them an end goal to say, figure out how much a swamp is worth in points. And th this led them down a particular path, and some uh, of the, the teachers who were there, and, and Ted and AJ commented on, this actually happening in the classroom with the students that they had played it with, who were, who were all sixth graders, uh, they went on to go, well, how much would a Jedi be worth? So they now had about 30 different numbers to, to put together and calculate, and which got them to learning about exponents as a notational method for taking care of dealing with that number of numbers. Uh, so I think that we can use these these games for different learning objectives um, by not focusing entirely on what's going on on screen, but using that as another resource for doing things off screen. Totally, I totally agree with that. I think you know games create this awesome context for not just exploring the objectives that were in them if they were purposefully designed learning games, uh, but they create an experience that can be returned to again and again. Uh, and a, a teacher or a mentor can appeal to someone's already the experience they had, the things they did, and the, and the sense of mastery they had as a as both verbs, content, and I think even identity that can be drawn on again and again as a as a more durable component of the experience. Yeah, the thing that I think is really powerful with that is that the kids want to play. They're engaged to the point where if you didn't give them a direction, they would just keep doing whatever they wanted. And that's the sort of experience that you want them to take home and continue tinkering with this and, and you know, geeking out with it with their families, with their brothers and sisters, with their parents to create a, uh, a connected learning environment where they're now bringing things from the classroom into the, you know, their real world, their home. 
and, and blurring the lines between where learning is actually taking place. Mm -hmm. yeah. So as we're thinking about, oh, sorry, <laughs> keeps That's happening. Erin, go for it. Well, I think there's a really powerful thing in, in the particular use of that game in that way, which is also that you take a game that is intriguing and mysterious and initially unpredictable and then encourage kids to deconstruct the system, which I think is one of the most effective ways that a game can be used in the classroom. Uh, because kids will have this intrinsic interest. You take something that's just engaging all by itself, and then you say, okay, figure out how this works, which will also tap into, we're going to engage a different kind of cognitive thinking about the game system itself that kids will be interested in because they have this interest in making games. That seems to be pretty universal. So if you tap into, here's how this thing is made, you're revealing to them, here's how you can actually figure out things that are interesting to you in the real world. There's all kinds of good messages in it. And so as we're thinking about navigating that space and exploring what it, what it really means to design a game in and outside of the classroom, um, do any of you guys have tips or advice for educators who are really interested in finding out how to pick a good game uh, or, or the right video game for their own learning environment? Yes, absolutely. So this is sort of my wheelhouse. Uh, I've been working with the Playful Learning Group uh, for a couple of years, which is the, a collaboration with LGN and the Games Learning uh, Society out of Madison, which does sort of workshops and face-to-face -face connections to bridge the way that teachers are working with these games and ideas and uh, give them touch points and context and things like that. And from that, there's a variety of different websites that you can use to sort of feel out these different game options. The playfullearning.com uh, website is, is one. Uh, we at Game Desk have created Educate, which is a, another free resource that has tons and tons of games uh, also aligned to Common Core and Next Gen Science standards on it for people to try out and uh, give feedback on how they thought it worked in their classes, touch points. Common Sense Media has graphite.org, uh, Institute of Play, as for, for kids, the um, uh, Playforce website. So I think that there's a huge variety of places out there to look uh, to get started. Those are really great points, Rex. And I think, I think in terms of, so I think based on the research I've been doing in school settings, I think that, I think that schools and teachers could do a better job of really just starting where young people's interests are. You know, what are they into? What kinds of games or activities do they like? Um, and then from there, um, and again, we've talked about how it's, there's no one-size-fits-all fit all answer to this game or that game, but I think from our research we're learning that generally games that are less about casual consumption-oriented gameplay and rather provide opportunities for creating and sharing with peers tend to lend themselves more to connected learning types of experiences. And then mentors can be positioned to learn more about young people's interests and also identify the very cool academic things that young people are doing as they pursue these types of games. I, I think that may be um, uh, uh, some kind of things to consider when thinking about in, in and out of the classroom stuff. I think designers too, um, designers can definitely make everything a lot easier for use in schools and when they're considering the objectives, they're, they're integrating into a game. But not just consider the objectives, but uh, also consider the planned assessments of those objectives. Um, and that serves two purposes. One, it'll actually help uh, when it actually comes to that assessment, rather than that assessment failing to measure the learning that happened inside the game. And two, it can create a dialogue to start arguing for a higher quality assessment. 
uh, if, um, if you feel that the assessment that is coming up that's, that would compare, uh, would pair up with that hand, now during design is a great time to start, mark, to start arguing for a better assessment. Um, I think games can also do a better job uh, when they're designed purposefully for classrooms to think about how teachers normally teach those concepts. Uh, so, for example, Philament made a game called Cell Command uh, a couple of years back. Uh, we developed our own internal representations of cellular function that I would say made sense to us, um, but when teachers saw how we represented those components of how a cell worked, they said that's nothing like how we talk about the pieces of the cell. It's, they were technically accurate, but they were totally wild interpretations of, and representations of those functions that teachers never use. So we had to go back and rework many of the, the game mechanics to actually recontextualize the cell functions in ways that teachers can actually use in the classroom rather than, oh, you know, a bunch of, you know, designers sat around and thought that this was a good representation of those objectives. So, you know, so I think that's really important. Um, I think the last one, too, is that it's always worth talking to teachers. Well, just, like, stop. But it's always worth talking to teachers uh, about common misconceptions that float around learning objectives because you, those usually those misconceptions exist for a reason. And I think it's very easy to accidentally use those misconceptions uh, or even work, work with them by accident in your game model. So, so finding out what teachers have to undo as well as what they actually have to inform uh, can help you dodge some landmines in terms of designing a game that's useful as a tool. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> oh, sorry. Uh, I was actually um, jumping back a little bit, too, about the use of games in the classroom um, and, and how to find them. One thing that I wish existed more, and I definitely want to look at those uh, resources you mentioned, Rex, I'm familiar with Graphite, but not some of the others, um, is that I wish there were discussion guides for games yeah. that we could provide for teachers. Because I think that if teachers would think about games the way that they think about novels in terms of their use in the classroom, I actually think you can take even a simple casual game and um, it, like I, it makes me want to write a lesson plan for Temple Run and say, what yeah. is the experience of the people in this temple that are having while these people are running through it? Like, is it good or bad? And get kids to think critically about the things that they already intrinsically care about. Yeah, that's, that's the exact sort of thing that Educate has up on it. And, uh, and the real focus that we have there is to get teachers to, and get people really to think about games as those powerful tools like you were mentioning that uh, they can use really any tool however they see fit as long as they have an ingrained understanding of how it works and then they can actually start tinkering with it to deconstruct it and use it in a different way. So using Settlers of Catan as more than just an activity but for, to talk about the social constructs of you know, what happens if we uh, take out half the numbers? What happens if we uh, make sure there's only one mountain tile? What happens if we do these sorts of things and try to connect, connect them and compare them to, say, why different trade routes might exist in different parts of the country so, or in different parts of the world? So is that why, do we, why is there so much, you know, contested space over oil and, and What's the purpose of that? How did that happen? Uh, and you can get at those if you think about these really critically as 
uh, tools that you can use and, and leverage them as engaging experiential moments that you can use for learning. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, we're about to hit the top of the hour. It's so unfortunate there's never enough time. Um, thank you, everybody, very much for an amazing conversation. Uh, to everybody watching, we'll have a full video recording of the webinar available immediately on connectedlearning.tv, uh, along with other curated content on the way that you can also share with your network. Uh, this wraps up the third webinar of this month-long series, but that doesn't mean any of our conversations have to end there. Uh, we encourage everyone to keep the energy going by using the Twitter hashtag Connected Learning, as well as getting involved in ongoing conversations we have within the Connected Learning Google Plus community. Um, if you want to know about upcoming webinars and other Connected Learning highlights, you can go to www.connectedlearning.tv and sign up for the email newsletter. Uh, we hope to see you online this coming Tuesday, September 30th at the same start time of 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern. Uh, we'll be closing out the month with a look at the growing recognition of the power of game-based video learning, especially among parents, and how to communicate with them effectively. Thanks again, everybody.